in the year from the creation of the world, when in the beginning God created heaven and earth, 5,199. From the flood, 2,957. From the birth of Abraham, 2,015. From the Moses and the coming of the Israelites out of Egypt, 1,510. From the anointing of King David, 1,032. In the 65th week, according to the prophecy of Daniel, in the 194th Olympiad, in the year 752 from the founding of the city of Rome, in the 42nd year of the empire of Octavian Augustus, when the whole world was at peace, in the sixth age of the world, Jesus Christ, eternal God and Son of the Eternal Father, desirous to sanctify the world by his most merciful coming, having been conceived of the Holy Ghost, and nine months having elapsed since his conception, is born in Bethlehem of Judah, having become man of the Virgin Mary, the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh. Brethren in Christ, Laudetur Jesus Christus, Biba Christo Rei. Merry Christmas to one and all. Christ is born. Glorify him. Our King has come to redeem us. It is a great and joyous time. And this show is going to be covering the fullness of time. We're going to be talking about why the Roman martyrology has these words that were read. Why does it have this? What is this concept of the fullness of time? So this begins really in our Lord's ministry when he says, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. This is really when the the term of the fullness of time, the fulfilling of time, comes, and St. Paul also uses the phrase, the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law. So we've talked about typology and how typology is this architectural rendering of what is going to happen, what's going to be built. And so even in time itself, God is ruling over time, and in the time, he is filling up the time. He's creating and ruling nations, and he is filling up up the time. We're going to be talking about this and why this leads up into Christmas today as a part of the overall study that we're doing to the Holy Scriptures of the League of Christendom versus the Conspiracy of Antichrist. But before we do all that, we have a special announcement, and that is that the book, which we've been, this is all based on, Introduction of the Holy Bible for Traditional Catholics, has just been released as an audiobook. It's $15, is the same price as the print copy. So you can get that today by clicking at the link below. So you can purchase that for Christmas or um, a gift for a priest. It's Priests are particularly don't have time to read books, so it's a great gift for priests. And um, if you become a patron, you get the print copy for free or an electronic copy. So thanks to all who support this ministry, this apostolate. This ministry is, the mission of this apostolate is to unite Catholics against the enemies of Holy Church by means of truth and charity. And that is, that is our mission. So thank you to all of our supporters 
to help us do this mission. Without you, we cannot do it. So before we continue with our, into our topic, two quick prayer requests. We have uh, Caleb is converting with his wife and three daughters. Unfortunately, they are far away from a Latin mass. So we pray for them that they may figure out what they need to do for their souls, if that's moving or what what they need to do. So we pray for Caleb and his and his whole family being converted. Also, Taylor. Taylor is getting married. So we pray that Taylor and his wife are blessed with many children and a happy marriage. So we're going to go back into the book of Acts. Last year, or last week, we, we spoke about when the League of Christendom is starting to truly be bound together. The League, the, the word League comes from ligare, which means to bind together. It is a binding. This is what is going to make the show the difference between the the logos which binds the league together and the conspiracy of antichrist which is a mob and their uniting principle is an, a principle of negation anything but christ so it's based on voluntarism which is just exerting one's own will it's not based on any any particular true principle it is based on exerting one's will and so it cannot unite this conspiracy it simply becomes a mob so we talked about how the enlargement of the tabernacle of David is happening with St. Peter, the first pope, who was exerting his papal authority in a very crucial matter, and that is baptizing Cornelius, who is a centurion, who is prophesying, it was really a, a, an archetype of the conversion of the Roman Empire that's about to happen, that's con- it's going to continue happening. And what we'll see here is that God is going to be meeting out judgment to the conspiracy of Antichrist, beginning with Acts chapter 12, with Herod being struck dead. Now, God always already struck dead Ananias and Sapphira earlier, because remember, the, the conspiracy is troubled at the birth of Christ, and the reason they're troubled is because they want power over the king, the coin, and the kitchen, the government, the economy, and the family. And Ananias and Sapphira are trying to exert their will. They're trying to lie about their their coin, their economy. They're trying to lie about their property, and get 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 a uh, a bigger power within the league, within the the church, by lying and having power over their own economy. We also talk about Simon Magus, who has magic. He's the one who he's trying to use money for power. Uh, so magic, money, the love of money, um, these are all manifestations of voluntarism, uh, asserting one's own will. So we continue with the, uh, and we, last week, remember, we had the beginning of the meeting of the judgment, which we will see in great vivid color in the book of Revelation once we get there. But we have in ver- uh, chapter 11, verse 28, there was a great famine over all the world. And when it says all the world, that phrase means the Roman Empire. That's the, the ecumeny, uh, this, this term all the world is talking about the Roman Empire. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Now, Claudius is the emperor immediately before Nero. And we're going to talk about Nero and the mark of the beast and what, how that relates to Caesar Nero and how the in the book of Revelation is going to really bring together what we'll talk about today, which is the prophecy of Daniel. So chapter 12, verse 1 says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. Now we have an assertion of power, an assertion of voluntarism, 
by the the reigning king, Herod. Now, we're going to break down some of the Herods because there's a lot of different Herods in the Bible that are not always specified who is who. And in this chapter, we're going to see God meeting out judgment. But before we do that, we're going to stop and we're going to take a flashback because we're going to talk about the fullness of time because this is really when we have the the we have the confrontation really between the league and the the league of Christendom and the conspiracy of antichrist in this chapter chapter 12 because all before we had the confrontation between the king Christ the king and the conspiracy when he was crucified and rose again and now we have the league forming and this is really when the conspiracy of antichrist starts to really strike out against them from the reigning powers. We had St. Stephen. They killed St. Stephen. The mob killed him. So they shed blood here. Saul was converted. He was converted by Logos, not by volunteerism. Now we have Herod. But we're going to stop here and we're going to take a flashback to see all of what's going to go go on here. And we're going to take a flashback to the four beasts of Daniel. The four beasts of Daniel are going to be summed up in the great beast of Revelation 13. So... This is the fullness of time. This is this is the way that God rules the earth. And this is all going to bring up to giving a backstory to Herod and who he is and who this individual is who begins to oppress the, the church. So the first there so what happens is the prophet Daniel goes with the exiles into Babylon. Okay. Here is this is the Babylonian Empire at the time of the destruction of the first temple. The first temple is destroyed. Daniel is brought to Babylon. So as you can see, Jerusalem is over there on the, on the western uh, side of this map. And then due east is Babylon. This is where Daniel goes. And this is where he receives the prophecy of the four beasts. And the four beasts are these four kingdoms. And it says it in Daniel, it says that it's interpreted to Daniel that there are these four beasts and they represent the four kingdoms, these four empires that are going to happen. Now, the key part here is that empires are ruled by voluntarism. They seek by means of bloodshed to exert their power over the world. Which means that they are simply puppet kingdoms of Satan. And we're going to see this explicitly in the book of Revelation when the dragon gives his power to the beast. And this is the meaning of empire, because empire is the use of bloodshed, unjust bloodshed, invading and conquesting, to exert one's power. It is a false kingdom set up against the kingdom of God. So Daniel receives the prophecy of the four beasts, and the four beasts are, first, the Babylonian empire, and then... What you'll see here is this is the fullness of time that's that that God is creating here. He's he is he is permitting these these kingdoms to arise. And St. Thomas says God cannot permit evil except insofar he as he can bring good out of it. And so this is the fullness of time is that God is bringing going to bring good out of evil. So these are these evil kingdoms ruled by Satan and they're expanding out like this, but God is going to bring good out of evil. So we have, next, we have the Persian Empire. Now, this is under Cyrus the Great. Now, Daniel, Book of Daniel, we'll get into some of that um, next week, God willing, which is going to be a, an exact parallel of what's going to happen to Herod in, in, uh, 
the book of Acts. But here's the here's the Persian Empire. So this is the the five um, the uh, the movie three hundred depicts the battle between the Persian Empire and the uh, the Spartans. So this is the whole empire that was fighting the the Spartans. Um, the so as you can see, this goes further on all the way into India, and then and so Cyrus the Great is the one who rebuilds builds the second temple, which creates the second temple Judaism. Period. Which there is no prophet. Now here is the key. There is there is the the prophet Zechariah and Haggai who helped them establish the temple. Now the temple is established in order that the Messiah will come into his temple. This is what I believe the prophet. It's either Micah or Malachi. I'm not sure which one, but it says that the then your God will come to his temple. And so it is it is establishing the temple. And, and the prophet Haggai says that the glory of the second temple will be greater than the first. But in the book of Ezra, it says that they wept when they saw the second temple because those who had seen the first temple knew that the second temple was actually lesser than the first temple. And so the prophet Haggai is not referring to the temple itself, but it, referring to the church. And you see in the in the prophecy of Ezekiel during the same time, um, he was prior to, to the rebuilding, but he prophesies the rebuilding of a temple as well. And this temple is, is massive. It is a massive temple. And all of these things are going to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation with the establishment of the church against all these four beasts. So this is the second beast, the Persian Empire. Now, once all of this is set up, God then brings good out of evil by spreading what's called Hellenism. This is the third beast. The third beast is Alexander the Great, who conquers all the way from Greece, all the way to... So he basically conquers all of Persia, and yet he incorporates it from Greece. So he takes everything that Persia did, and then he adds Greek culture. Now, Greek culture was the culture that had arisen through natural reason to know and understand logos by natural reason. So they understand logos. They're the ones who coined the term logos. It's a Greek word. And then he spreads what's called Hellenism. Hellenism is simply Greek culture. And there's a higher culture and there's a lower culture. The higher culture is the Greek language, philosophy, logos. There's the beauty of literature, the beauty of architecture. All of these things are logos. Logos according to natural reason. But there's also a lower lower Greek culture, and that is the paganism, the debauchery, the sodomy, all of these wicked things that come along with Greek culture, and yet spread spreading this Greek culture and this Greek language all throughout this whole area. So all of these people are speaking Greek. And this is where you get the Septuagint. under under In Alexandria, the Septuagint is translated. And the, the Septuagint is a Greek translation. We talked about this on the show yesterday. Uh, if you haven't watched the show last yesterday, you really need to check it out. It's, it's amazing. Uh, this great book from uh, Albrecht and Kappas. Um, but we talked about the Septuagint. The Septuagint was considered to be a divine translation because the a very early record indicates that 70 rabbis got together in Alexandria. They all translated the Hebrew text, all the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. They translated it, 70 different rabbis separately, and they all came back with the exact same Greek translation. That's the story. And whether it's true or not, the point is it indicates that 
it was the the Septuagint translation was revered as divinely inspired, and so it is the Greek translation of the Septuagint, which translates everything into Greek, and this is what will then allow the the gospel to spread eventually. So then we have the fourth kingdom now. But before we get it, I'm sorry, the four, fourth beast. We're, here's the Roman Empire real quick, but I'm going to get back to that in just a second because I want to go back to the Greek. Now, according to one rendering of the four beasts, now, another thing, we, we've talked about this before when we talked about the Psalms, but the Holy Scriptures has many layers. So the four beasts can have multiple meanings as well. So one meaning also puts it, it it numbers it this way it says the babylonians were the first beast the and then the medes and the persians are beast number two number three and then number four is actually the greek kingdom specifically under antiochus the tyrant against whom the maccabees revolt because this greek culture is on this on the one hand you have the septuagint translation which is a higher form a higher for uh, area of the greek culture but then you have the uh the prophecy of Daniel of the the abomination of desolation, which happens in this time, the first manifestation of it, which is when they defiled the temple, and this is what leads to the Maccabean revolt. So this, and you can read about in the book of verse in Second Maccabees, the the righteous, the just, uh, Judahites, Levites, and Benjaminites, the the remaining three tribes of Israel, they revolt. And they cleanse the temple. They take back the temple from the abomination of desolation. They cleanse it, and they restore the priesthood and the, and the altar. Now, there's a very important point to make here, and that is this. In 1 Maccabees 4, they take back the temple, and here's what it says. Chapter 4, 44. And he considered about the altar of Holocaust that had been profaned, what he should do with it. And a good counsel came into their minds to pull it down. So they're pulling down this, this altar that was profane with abomination and desolation, lest it should be a reproach to them because the Gentiles had defied it, so they threw it down. And they laid up the stones in the mountain of the temple in a convenient place till there should come a prophet and give answer concerning them. So you see the justice of the Maccabees because they're doing their best, but there's no prophet. Now, if you read the Old Testament, God always guides his people through prophets. It's a man, it's, it's the, the phrase is man of God. The man of God. Uh, there's this great story of Elijah calling fire from heaven about if I'm a man of God. You can look that up. But the man of God is the one who leads the people, the prophet, the person who says that he has direct contact with God and he is, he is speaking for on behalf of God. And so we see in verse 46 that they are hesitant to alter the temple, hesitant to do something that may offend God without the blessing of a prophet. Now, this the same thing happens in chapter 14, 41. And the Jews and their priests had consented that he, this is talking about Simon, the high priest, he should be their prince and high priest forever till there should arise a faithful prophet. So you see in the Maccabees, the, the first generation of Maccabees, they are just, they're saints. And they say, well, we're going to do our best according to the law of Moses, but we realize that they're, they're, there's no prophet who's directing us about what to do here. So they're leaving space for God to act. They're not acting out of voluntarism. They're not just asserting their will. And what we're going to see with the founding of rabbinic Judaism much later is that they are going to make dramatic changes to the law of Moses without any prophet's blessing. 
They're going to be asserting their own will. They're going to be asserting their own authority over the law of Moses. But what we see here in Maccabees is that they are not asserting their own authority. They say, we have to wait for a prophet to tell us what to do about this because we haven't received any word from God. We're just going to continue in what we did before. So they cleanse the temple. They reestablish the priesthood. But what happens is the son of Simon, John Hyrcanus, he becomes high priest. And what happens? This is when, this is going to become the context for what's going to happen in Acts chapter 15 with the League of Christendom. Here's the context. So this is in the 2nd century B.C. John Hyrcanus, the high priest, son of Simon. So we've got the second generation of Maccabees. This is called the Hasmonean dynasty. This is when Israel had an independent kingdom, independent of all these empires, these beasts. But what happens is they begin to imitate the beasts. Hyrcanus becomes his own emperor. He starts invading Samaria. He starts invading Edom. He forcibly converts them to Judaism. He forces them to be circumcised. He, his son, Judas Aristobulus, he seizes more power for himself. Against his mother, he casts his mother into prison to starve to death. He's the first one to be named king. And he continues his embar billing. He, he forcibly sub, subdues the Eritreans. He makes them Jews, forces them to be circumcised. And then we have Alexander Janius. He mints his king with the, or mints his coin with king. He's the high priest. And there's this contest of power where the second and third and fourth generations of Maccabees fall into imitating the empire. So they are forcing all these these kingdoms to be circumcised. Now, God, this is now we're already transgressing the law of Moses because God never commanded the Israel to invade another nation and force them to be Jews. There's a specific command against the Canaanites who were usurpers of the of the promised land. But the what's happening here is the the Hasmonean dynasty, the Maccabean dynasty, is is falling into corruption. It's falling into the same thing that these other kingdoms are doing, and they're forcing pagans to be circumcised. Now, this is, becomes the context of the book of Acts when the apostles decide that Christ the king is not an emperor to conquer with bloodshed and then force men to be circumcised. They're not going to force those parts of the law of Moses on them. They're going to make... They're, as prophets, they're going to adjudicate the law of Moses with the authority of Christ. But what we have here is that we have these kings, these, these Jewish kings, they're forcing people to convert to Judaism in the sense of they're forcing them to be circumcised. So one of these, group, one of these groups that were forced is the Edomites, who are descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And one group among these Edomites is Antipater Herod, who is the father of the Herodian dynasty. So he's an Edomite. He's a converted Jew. He's been circumcised. But he begins to gain power in the Hasmonean dynasty, which is deeply corrupt. And just as the fourth beast is arising, here's the fourth beast. 
Let me see. So here's the here's the Greek Empire. Here's the beast number three, and then we have here's the Roman Empire, which which arises. This is beast number four. Now, as beast number four arises around the year, uh, the first century BC, this is when Antipater Herod he gains power because the Roman Republic conquers Judea. So this this empire that they had built. The, the Hasmonean dynasty of the Maccabees, which the first generation was just, but all the next generations began to imitate these empires, these beasts, by using voluntarism, by using bloodshed, forcing men to be circumcised, which was never commanded by the law of Moses. And then, so they're transgressing the law of Moses for their own power. And so Antipater Herod, then he is able to seize power by making an alliance with the Romans. Now, the first generation of the Maccabees did make an alliance with the Romans, and that's really a prophecy for the divine providence, the use of the Roman Empire, which is going to happen with Christ. But what happens with the Hasmonean dynasty, they become so corrupt, and the the uh, Herod, uh, the first Antipater Herod, he bribes the Roman officials and is able to gain power using lies and violence just the same way as the, the corrupt Maccabean generations had done. Now, to give you an idea, I have uh, this. This is just a, this is black and white, but it gives you an idea of the space of the Roman Empire. So this is from one of, uh, I, this is just a photo that I took from a book. As you can see, the United States is um, superimposed over the Roman Empire. And so the American Empire in its in its land is a bit larger actually than the Roman empire. So the American empire in its land empire alone in the mainland is larger than the Roman empire, according to the area here. So just to give you an idea of how, how really how massive the Roman empire was and what the Roman empire did was again, God is ruling the nations. He's, he's orchestrating the fullness of time and he takes all the Greek culture, the, the greatness of the, the Greek language and the culture, and then he standardizes everything in a network of dioceses. This, the term diocese is a Roman term. It's a Roman term of organization. They had, and then they had provinces, and they had the pontifex, who was the pontifex maximus. That was the emperor. All, many of these terms, and we'll get into so many a different one of them, um, will be adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. Because God created all of these things, he, he ruled the nations, he orchestrated everything in the fullness of time, until we get to this point right here, where we have all these... Now, here's, here's another thing the Romans did, they built roads. People could walk from Judea all the way to Hispania in Spain. They could go to England. All of these areas are Romanized, they're taking the Greek culture, the greatness of the Greek culture, and then they're standardizing it with law, with organization, with administration... And this is what is going to allow the gospel to spread so rapidly because of the Roman Empire. If there was not the Roman Empire, the gospel and the church could not arise as quickly as it did, except for, except by some miraculous means. But this is what God created and, and prepared. And he's bringing good out of evil because the Roman Empire is the fourth beast. It's the fourth beast of Daniel. And we'll, what we'll see here in, in Revelation, as I said, the characteristics, the specific characteristics that David speaks of in the book of Daniel regarding the four beasts. 
are all put into one large beast in Revelation chapter 13, when it talks about the mark of the beast, which is the the number of the beast centered on Caesar Nero, and we'll talk about how all those things come together as the the League of Antichrist, or the sorry, the League of Christendom is fighting against the conspiracy of Antichrist. So what we have is the Herodian dynasty just continues the corruption that had had, had occurred with the Maccabean Hasmonean dynasty. So we're going to go quickly through who are these different Her- Her- Herods. Now we've we've had um, you've heard of Herod, you in the in the Holy Scriptures you've heard of Herod, and there's many different Herods. As I said, Antipater Herod is the very first one. He's the father of the whole Herodian dynasty, and his son is called Herod the so-called the Great. And I'm going to call him Herod the Worst. So, but he's known as Herod the Great to history. And he is the one who is troubled at the birth of Christ. So when, when St. Matthew said that um, it was announced that Christ the King had been born, he's the one who's troubled. And why is he troubled? He's got the power. Christ is going to take away his power. He is the one who has, he's taken the temple and he's sort of tried to make himself look like the Messiah by building more of the temple. And the, then he massacres the innocents in an, in a, in a, a, um, an effort to kill the king. So he tries to kill the king by massacring the innocents. Now, we also mentioned previously that he's the one who beer, he builds Caesarea Maritimia, which is where St. Peter had just gone in our story, the book of Acts. He had just gone here. This had been built by Herod the Worst, the very first, the, the great king, Herod, who's the son of Antipater. So then his son, what happens is they're, they're, they've made a, an unholy alliance with Rome. And this is what is going to foreshadow the alliance between the great beast, the sea beast and the land beast in Revelation 13 and following. The sea beast and the land beast. This is really the unholy alliance that's really putting together this conspiracy of Antichrist. So the then you have, uh, so Rome, Rome divided the Herodian kingdom into all of his sons and one daughter. So you have, when Joseph flees Herod the worst, he goes over to... He goes over to Egypt, and then when he comes back, the text says that Herod the Great, his son Archelaus, is the ethnarch of Judea, and this is where this is what causes Joseph to go to Nazareth. So he's he's avoiding Archelaus, the son of Herod. Then you have two other Herods. There's three different Herods that come out of the one Herod the Great or the worst. So you have Herod Antipas. He's the tetrarch of Galilee, and he's the one who commits public adultery with his sister-in-law. He's the one who John the Baptist rebukes, and he's the one who is present consenting to our Lord's death. So he's the one who's a a direct member of the conspiracy of Antichrist at our Lord's death. And Philip, then, Philip is the tetrarch of the the territories north and east of the Jordan. He's the one who builds Caesarea Philippi. That's why it's got that title, Caesarea plus Philippi. And it's just another means of trying to appease Caesar, trying to make that unholy alliance with Caesar. Philip is, is minting coins. And this is this city, Caesarea Philippi, 
is later named, renamed Neronia by Herod Agrippa II. Now, we'll get to that in a second, but I want to emphasize the, the manifestation of the book of Daniel. As I said, you can read it as manifesting the abomination of desolation in Antiochus where, when the Maccabees revolt. But the, the, the other fulfillment is the, when our Lord comes and starts calling himself the Son of Man. He says, son of, he calls himself the son of man all the time, and that's coming straight from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, we'll get into this in more detail in the future, but the book of Daniel talks about a vision of the son of man. And then our Lord also talks about the abomination of desolation. So there's a future abomination of desolation that's about to happen. And he says that this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Now, this is, this is the story that we're talking about right now, is the, is the abomination of desolation which is about to happen, which is going to continue to, which is going to continue to be revealed here in the book of Acts. Uh, but finally, we come to Herod Agrippa the first. Herod Agrippa the first is the one who we find in the book of Acts, chapter twelve. So we have all of the this fullness of time that God had brought this good out of all these evil kingdoms. These these kingdoms are. These kingdoms are being ruled by Satan. Satan is ruling through these kingdoms. And when St. Paul is converted, St. Paul is given the mission to proclaim him before kings. And he'll say later, he'll explain that what he means by that is to bring them from the power of Satan to the power of God. Because... So we come back to Acts, and we're going to wrap up here. So if anybody has any questions or comments, um, this, this is all the context for what's going to happen next week, which is when the conspiracy of Antichrist begins to be judged by God. We see the Herod is struck dead, and we're going to see why he is struck dead by God and what this means, and we're going to see the parallels that we'll, we'll, we'll get into with the, with the emperors because Claudius and then Nero are also judged by God. So going back to book of Acts, chapter 12, about that time, Herod the king. So this is Agrippa the, Agrippa the first, who's the grandson of Herod the worst, who massacred the innocents, okay? So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So we see this is the character of the conspiracy of Antichrist. The principle is anything but Christ. I'll do anything for power. I'm a man pleaser. He just wants to please the Jews. This is what his uncle, Herod Archelaus, I'm sorry, getting my Herods confused already, Antipas, Herod Antipas, he's the one who killed John the Baptist to please, to please men. And then you had, and then you have the Herod Agrippa the first. He's the one who's killing. He's shedding blood to please the Jews. So you see this conspiracy of Antichrist between this Edomite, this Edomite king who's a converted to a Jew. He's he's then he's pleasing the the other Jews. And so you have this unholy alliance to seek out power, to seek out power, to shed that blood for power. So what we're going to see is that we're going to see divine intervention 
against Herod in this chapter, which we'll get into next week. So next week we're going to continue. We'll get through Herod being uh, divine intervention coming against Herod. He's struck dead. We'll talk about the spread of the gospel with this fullness of time and all of this coming together in the formalization of the League of, Ant- the League of Christendom, chapter 15, which is when they formally reject all of these intrigues of the Hasmoneans when they were invading the Edomites and the Eritreans and the Sumerians and they were forcing them to be circumcised. They are going to proclaim that Jesus Christ the King is going to conquer by means of logos, not by means of bloodshed. He is not going to conquer by means of bloodshed and force someone to be circumcised. The kingdom of God is not an empire according to the earth, according to bloodshed, according to voluntarism. It is a kingdom not of this world. And what we'll see eventually is that St. Paul, the prophecy given to St. Paul by Jesus Christ, that he would testify before kings, that he would martyr before kings, will be fulfilled when he first testifies before the son of Agrippa, who is Agrippa number two, later in the book of Acts, he will testify before the last Herod Herodian king, whom God is giving the Herodian dynasty one last chance to repent before he cuts them off. And that's the last king, the Herodian king. He gives them a chance to repent. St. Paul looks him in the eye and says, repent, believe in the gospel. And then he will then all go all the way to Caesar to present the true king to Caesar. And this will be the culmination of the conspiracy of Antichrist being judged by God, which will culminate in the destruction of the temple the fires of Rome against Nero, all of this is coming. The, the, the conflict is just escalating as we see through this story. And it's going to come to a head as the rabbinic pharisaical Judaism is founded after the destruction of the temple. So this is the story we're continuing. So thanks so much for watching. Uh, once again, the audio book, you can download that below. You can buy the book. You can become a patron. So thanks so much for all of your... Uh, patience with uh, getting this thing all together and I hope it's been helpful I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas let's celebrate Christ the King that he is born against the conspiracy of Antichrist against the machination of the evil men which we see in our world so let's offer up on our Father praising Christ the King the newborn King Jesus Christ our Lord in nomine Patris Fidi Spiritus Sancti Amen Pater nostra quies in cedis, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fio voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. Panem nostrum pudianum da nobis hodie, dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut in nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et nenos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris, et fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.